Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 55. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. You're looking a bit tired, Ravi. Oh, I'm shattered. <laughs> I've, I've just been travelling from Ireland. Well, I went to Ireland and back. All that Guinness? Yeah, oh, it's lovely Guinness in Ireland, you know, much nicer than in the UK. So you've been out there, you did um, four days in Ireland in the end uh, for the first Amiga Island show. Yeah, and uh, this was really good fun. There was like, you know, 50 guys and we all had a great drink, we had a good time and I'd like to thank Jarluff and all the Irish Amiga users and they're based at AmigaUser.ie, which is their new website and I'm going to be going next year. So, every year, this should be a little annual thing, Amiga Island. I've got to make it out there next year. Ravi actually uploaded a video. Um, you took a bit of footage there as well. It starts with them uh, blasting ice off the plane. Yeah, it was, chilly, oh it? God, it was four <laughs> in the morning when I left. But it's a really quick <laughs> flight over to Ireland. It's only just half an hour. So. Really? That's yeah. nuts. And then um, you got whooped in the sensible soccer tournament. Oh, yeah, God, I was, I was <laughs> awful. But um, it was such a good time. There was David Pleasance there. There was mm-hmm. Trevor Dickinson. But I also did something extra, extra special for the retro hour afterwards. Well, you're going to be able to hear Ravi's little... Uh, you did a little kind of package that you recorded out there, little show report that we're going to put on the end of this week's show. Yeah. But before that, though, we do have a rather special guest on this week's show. Now, I'm sure everyone's read the show title and seen yeah. it in the video by now. But you went to hang out at John Romero's secret Irish lair. Now, this is a guy that we've wanted on the podcast for ages. Um, we've been trying to organise it over email. In the end, you just thought, I'm going to go go to his house. I'm going to go, and, and I'll tell you what happened. I kind of got... <clears throat> left in an alleyway with the Irish organiser of the event. Yeah. And um, we went onto a street that I'm not going to name, and suddenly a door opened, and John Romero was there on this uh, inconspicuous building. It uh, doesn't look like any major games place or anything. And uh, Jarliff ran away, because <laughs> Jarliff was like, wow, overwhelmed. Starstruck, was he? Starstruck, oh, and just him. literally ran down the street. And I went up to the studio and had an interview with him. So there might be a bit of um, kind of general noise on this interview, but, you know, this is perfect. This is with the man. Yeah, well, this is, he's got like a top secret studio then. Like no top, one knows top secret studio, yeah. Only you know about. Yeah. Did you have to be blindfolded on your way there? A blindfolded, a helicopter, and everything. <laughs> Spin you around five times. Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking the guy behind, you know, games like what? Let's name a few of John Romero's games. Wolfenstein 3D. Oh, Doom and Obviously. Quake. Yeah, id Software. You know, arguably this guy, I mean, I've heard him and John Carmack being described as the Lennon and McCartney of the video games world. Totally. And I've, I've heard Doom as being described as one of the most successful games ever. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Huge. So we're going to get the inside story. Ravi sat down on Ravi's travels in Ireland, <laughs> pint of Guinness in hand, in John Romero's secret studio. You're going to get the full inside story on the creation of games like Doom, Wolfenstein 3D. And, and his new game coming yeah. out as well. Yeah. And uh, how he killed the Amiga. Oh, yes. There, there is a little <laughs> bit of Amiga in there as well, guys. So that's coming up on the Retro Hour. 
in around 20 minutes from now. Now, we've got to say a massive thank you to uh, everyone who keeps this show going. You know, we aim to give you a good show every week and bring you people like John Romero. And without people like David McLaughlin. Andrew M. Marsh. Stephen Leary. And Daniel Willars. Who all made very generous donations to the Retro Hour podcast this week the show would not be possible. So thank you so much for your support. And if you ever want to put, you know, a couple of quid in the tip jar, doesn't have to be much. We've got it on the front page. Little PayPal link at theretrohour.com, completely at your own discretion. Now, competition time. Now, we had this competition running a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, to win a signed copy of that legendary British producer's The Oliver Twins' new book, um, Let's Get Dizzy. Yep. Now, we had loads, hundreds and hundreds of entries for this competition. Uh, we set you a question... Who was Dizzy's girlfriend? And of course it was Daisy. Yeah, it wasn't Princess Peach, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I think pretty much everyone got it right, yeah. to be fair. But selected at random, well done to Ross Mantle, who is going to get a signed, personalised copy of the Oliver Twins book, signed by the Twins themselves. Expect that in the post in the next 28 days. And the winning doesn't stop there. No. Now, when I was with John Romero, I got him to sign a couple of things. Ooh. And we've got a signed copy of... An absolutely amazing book, Masters of Doom, and it's how two guys created an empire and transformed pop culture. This is all about doom, and, you know, I put it down there and said, John, what do you think of this book? And he said, it's all true in there. So, there okay, you go. Okay, from, from the man himself? Yep. So, you got that signed, a copy of that book, um, and also, Ultimate Doom Collection Edition for the PC. Yeah, so this has, like, you know, Doom 2, Ultimate Doom, all, all, all the kind of old-school Dooms in there. So these are both signed by John Romero. Yep. And you're giving these away. These yeah, are yeah, worth, I, these I, worth I, a fortune. You know, you I, I, I could have kept them <laughs> as yeah, well, yeah. but but listeners, go for it. Oh, Ravi, you're all heart. <laughs> so if you'd like to win a copy, a signed copy of Masters of Doom, the book, and also Ultimate Doom Collection for the PC, signed by the man who made the game, John Romero, all you have to do is head to our website, theretrohour.com, and answer this question. What was the PC platformer developed by John Romero and the id Software team released for MS-DOS in 1990? Was it A? Jazz Jackrabbit. B? Cool Spot. Or C? Commander Keen. If you don't know the answer, you'll find out a bit later in the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but all you've got to do, you've got two weeks from today to enter that. We're going to keep this competition open until midnight on February the 10th, 2017. Um, all the details and rules and the form that you need to fill in to enter this competition, you can find on the front page of theretrohour.com. Right, before we get to the main man himself, let's get into this week's news stories. And I thought it might be quite appropriate to start with some Wolfenstein 3D news. Oh, cool. Now, there is, um, this is a mod on uh, Wolfenstein 3D. There have been many of the years. This is actually, you know, the Wolfenstein 3D source code got open sourced and released back in like 1995. Yeah, because I noticed mods uh, versions were going on systems where they hadn't had Wolfenstein before. Yeah, and before, you, had, you know, when you had like Doom mods, you had to have the WAD files, but the original on CD or whatever. Uh, with this, though, it's actually, you can download it and the whole game's included. So, so it's like free implementation, yeah. is it? Yeah. And uh, this is called Atom Project. So it's a mod of the um, Wolfenstein 3D, um, runs on the engine. 34 new levels, though, and it's basically a new story. This is um, set in World War II, like the original game, and it's uh, basically uh, Germany has um, figured out the nuclear bomb. Ah, oh, wow. So yeah. you've got to go and stop it before they launch that on London. <laughs> so oh, that, that's, that's great, and I can see that there's kind of, you know, nuclear waste and uh, atomic bombs in this, and God, I can imagine the explosions and stuff. 
Yeah, well, I downloaded this before, and uh, <laughs> the download is 1.6 megabytes <laughs> with the engine all included in the game to run nice. it, the EXE. But it's so well done, you know. It really, if you just want a new version of Wolfenstein 3D, graphically, it's amazing. There's some really funny bits in there as well. It's all retextured and stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it's all, you know, it, you know, I run new this on enemies my, and yeah, it's all all new, everything in it. And it's, um, you know, I run this on my 1080p monitors, and it looks really smooth and it scrolls really nicely. So if you want to download that, it just came out um, on. January 22nd, so it's brand new. Um, I think there's only about 100 people have downloaded it so far. That's so, so cool. Go and check it out. It's called Atom Project Wolfenstein 3D. Um, I'll pop a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, I got myself a uh, new laptop recently. Oh, well, which one was it? It was the uh, <laughs> ultra gimmicky uh, MacBook Pro with the touch bar. Ah, the touch bar. Well, there is some interesting things you can do with the touch bar, and running Doom is one of them. <laughs> Now, Why doesn't that surprise me? <laughs> yeah. Now, everybody tries to run Doom on everything, as we know, fridges, microwaves, um, microwaves, clocks, whatever's going. But this one's crazy. It's a full playable version, but it's like squashed Doom because it's on this touch bar. So, What's it, the resolution? Then? It's 2170 by 60. <laughs> yeah, okay, that sounds about right. So this isn't like, see, when I first saw that, I thought, is that just a control? This is actually a full game that you play on the touch bar. Yeah, yeah, and it's That's got uh, sound effects, and uh, you can, like, go through the levels and everything. But, you know, I don't know how you'd <laughs> view it properly. <laughs> it, there's, a, there's a video of it working on this thing. Well, that's really because I got this. I mean, if you haven't seen this, it's basically Apple's latest um, 13 inch uh, MacBook Pro, uh, the high end one that I just bought recently. You've actually got it's kind of like you know, it's a little OLED display, it's um, it's essentially like an Apple Watch but kind of stretched out over the top of your laptop keyboard. And you know, you can use it for you know, that kind of changes when you've got video editing software, you get mark in and mark out points, and you can scrub your timeline. First day I got it, you sent me a, a little Pac Man animation yeah. that goes across it, didn't you? So there are some cool stuff that people are doing with yeah, it. Yeah, there's a Nyan cat one. <laughs> so you can have a Nyan cat going across the uh, screen. Yeah, worth the extra 300 quid to get that model, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just now, for the cat. <laughs> just for Nyan cat, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you want to download that, if you do have one of those, we'll, uh, we'll shoot that in our show notes as well. Now, speaking of the Mac, um, you know, I've been playing around with my new MacBook Pro recently, and I found this really cool um, emulation suite that is only available for Mac OS. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's called OpenEMU. No, I haven't, and it looks really nice because I've been in an absolute bloody nightmare at the moment. I've been trying to put hyperspin yeah. on my PC so I can sit and play with uh, wireless controllers and have it on a nice TV, and it's just crazy, like the amount of configuration you have to do and everything. That's always put me off, like kind of doing emulation, especially emulators that do more than one system. Yeah, yeah, multiple systems, that's the issue, and it's like, am I using the right emulator? Is this fast enough? Blah, blah, blah. Well, this thing, I mean, it kind of goes into the um, Apple philosophy of, you know, it just works, as Apple ah, say. Yeah. Um, so what it is, it's uh, a program that you download. You don't need anything extra to run it. You don't need, like, you know, um, system ROMs or anything like that, you know, for the actual machines, no BIOSes or, you know, nothing like that. And uh, this is just one file you download, you double-click it, it opens this really nice UI, and then you put your game ROMs, you know, you download them from your favorite website, and you just plays them. It just looks like Spotify or, yeah. or, or Steam or something like that. And this covers, you know, a load of systems. Um, you know, all the classic Atari 2600, 5200, 7800, the Lynx, uh, Game Boys are all in there, different variants of the Game Boy, the NES, N64, uh, PCFX, Sega 32X, Sega CD, Mega Drive. So all you do, you know, literally, you can plug in a USB controller 
you know, you might need to use an adapter if you've got a Mac like me because of those USB-C ports. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's literally plug and play. This is really good, and I reckon it would be good for doing stuff like screenshots and kind of, um, you know, recording your gameplay. It's just, you know, unfortunately, it's only available on Mac OS at the moment. I would like to see them put it out on Windows and Linux as well. Because um, I think, you know, I've been playing around with this. I'm going to do a video on this hopefully in the next week or so. So I'll, um, I'll stick that on our Facebook when I do. But it's just so slick. Yeah, no, it looks really nice and it's totally free as well. Yeah, so. absolutely. So uh, the website for that is openmu.org if you want to check it out. Now, Atari are a company that we've always, you know, found quite interesting. Yeah, well, they're the pioneers of video games, aren't they? So. But, you know, kind of the early Atari stuff. I mean, you know, you know I, I've got an interest in the 2600 and the 5200. Not really machines that I played around with all that much. Mm. Um, a little bit before our time, those machines were. But if you ever wanted to play any of those classic Atari games, uh, very soon you might be able to play them on your wrist, apparently. Okay, how's this going to work? Is it going to be like an Atari watch? Oh. Well, that's what I was thinking at first. Now, um, obviously, it's not the real Atari. I think it's um, Infograms, I think, own the trademark to them currently, don't they? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. I think so. So what they're going to be doing, apparently, last year they um, announced that they were going to go back into the hardware business, so they're going to be doing new Atari-branded hardware. And the first thing they're going to be doing is uh, this kind of a wrist strap. So... What they've actually done is they're working with a company who did, I don't know if you saw this, um, it's a company called um, Now Computing, and they did the game ban for Minecraft last year. Oh, no, no, I've not seen this. So before you get too excited about the prospect of maybe having like, you know, an Atari watch or something, what this is, I mean, I I presume it's probably going to be similar to the Minecraft one. That was essentially a wearable USB stick. Okay, (laughs) so... Well, it wasn't even a Tamagotchi or anything. <laughs> no, it's got a little display on it, and you can kind of customise the LEDs on there. So, you, can, you know, you can put like, make it into a creeper or whatever off Minecraft. Oh, okay. And it kind of wraps around your arm, and you plug it into, like, a computer. So it's essentially for your kids. You can put all of their save game, you know, Minecraft worlds and stuff on there as well. And it kind of has the Minecraft game on there, so they plug it into a new machine that'll install ah, Minecraft. But and load you can't on actually them. play on the... Uh, no. no. Oh. So it's just... Uh, which, you know, the fact that they're working with this uh, now computing company who did that, I imagine it's probably going to be like a kind of collection of Atari 2600 ROMs and an emulator and maybe some like LED screen on there, but you plug it into a PC. And yeah, because they were saying that they had the uh, Pokemon Go bands as well, which would kind of tell you the locations of... Uh... Local Pokemon. Yeah, they're running like Google Maps or something. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. But I've been seeing this, you know, on quite a few websites. And everyone's like, oh, my God, they're going to make like an Apple Watch killer. But I've done a bit of digging down. I think it's probably going to be just a wearable USB stick with an emulator on there. But Get a Tamagotchi. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's cool to see, you know, Atari brand on stuff, maybe. I don't yeah, know. yeah. Kind of yeah, I think that's good. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one. We'll let you know if we hear any more. Yeah, I hope it is an Atari watch. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm, I'm going to have to get rid of my Apple watch in. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> so thank you for checking out episode number 55 of the Retro Hour. Ravi's report from Amiga Island is coming up at the end of the show. And uh, is there a bit of audio of you getting thrashed on this Sensi? Yeah, there's a bit of audio of that, and there's a bit of audio of John Romero talking about his Amiga connection as well. Okay. And a quick reminder, if you'd like to win a signed copy of Masters of Doom, uh, the book, and Ultimate Doom Collection for the PC, both signed by John Romero, you've got to answer this question. What was the PC platformer developed by John Romero and the id Software team released for MS-DOS in 1990? A, Jazz Jack Rabbit, B, Cool Spots, or C, Commander Keen? Enter that competition at theretrohour.com and that merchandise could be yours. Right then, I think we've teased them long enough. Yeah, let's go for it. John Romero, Doom on the Retro Hour. At long last, 
Finally. Here he is, and we'll catch you next week. Ciao. So, this is the Retro Hour, and I'm talking to John Romero. Hello. How are you doing? Doing great. Yeah, and I've uh, come up to Ireland to see you in your wonderful studio. Yep. <laughs> it's really nice here. Thanks. Um, I was wondering, what was your first computer experience that you ever had? Ooh, first computer experience. I'd have to say um, that it was probably the mainframe at Sierra College in 1979. So this was one of the giant mainframes. Yeah, yeah. It was in a it was in a, a separate room by you know by itself, and then the other room next to it had twenty five black and white HP terminals with keyboards, you okay. know, terminal and the keyboard, and they were all connected to it. And it was a timeshare system. So that was kind of in one of these rooms that if it would overheat, all the CO2 yeah, the halon, would come yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, fire. If there was fire, then it would suck all the oxygen out of the room, and the fire would be gone. So a proper massive beast. Yeah. And uh, what kind of stuff would you like? Uh, Look well, at then. I guess it was the, simple. The, at the very beginning, it was just like text games, and um, this is adventure, and hunt the wumpus, and poison cookie, and nim. You know, just like little little stuff like that. That's yeah. all text based. Um, and I was hoping it would be graphical because I just came from the arcade, and I was hoping <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was hoping they'd see something. It. I was hoping, yeah, I, I was like asteroids, and then you know, hunt the wumpus. <laughs> <laughs> but it was totally different, and it was interesting, and it was accessible because I could spend as much time as I wanted. It didn't cost any money, so that's the thing that kind of got me hooked. So you kind of got to go there regularly. Uh, yeah, for the summer of 79, I was there all the time. I was playing uh, adventure. I was learning how to program. I was writing my own adventure game in, in basic. Um, so I just that's how I started it. And then um, when I couldn't do that, then I would like go to Radio Shack stores, and they had books there, and they had the TRS-80s. And so I would get the books and be typing the programs from the books into the TRS-80s, just watch them and change them and... Anything I could before we had a computer in the house, uh, I went to every store I could to have access to a computer. So you you caught the bug early on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Yeah. And uh, what was your first computer system then? Uh, the first computer I had was an Apple II Plus. Ah, and of course, being in that region of America, it must have been very exciting at that time. It was when huge. I mean, Apple wasn't that far from us. Apple was probably two and a half hours from my house. So we were north of Silicon Valley. We're close to, you know, San Francisco. And then from San Francisco to San Jose was all Silicon Valley. Everybody was starting companies. Even, like, one of the best companies that we kind of modeled id Software after uh, was called Sirius Software. And it was in Sacramento, which was not even an hour from my house. And I guess you heard about stuff like the California Computer Club and all of that going on there were a ton of user groups all over the place like i went to some user group meetings what kind of fascinated you about the apple II then well the apple II had color had high-res graphics and it had sound and that's so different than trs80s and the commodore pad and mainframes and everything it was like the first time you could actually see a computer as being a game computer and that's in fact the reason why Waz made the computer was so he could put breakout on it in software instead of hardware and so it had to have those things in it to rep- try and replicate the arcade you know the arcade system that he created um, and he put enough in it that it was super exciting for a lot of game programmers totally and it seems to me that um, the Apple II is where it kind of started um, because there was even the piracy 
scene was started on the Apple II. Yep. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, before the disk drive appeared, I think in 79, the disk two, um, people were using cassette tapes. And there was, in fact, cassette tape copy protection, which okay. is pretty crazy because you think, well, the audio signal has to go into the computer and, and all that, right? Yeah. How's that going to work? Um, but they had copy protection, uh, so you couldn't write the program out from memory back out to a tape. It would kind of get destroyed if you tried to do or that. All scrambled. Or, yeah. yeah. You'd have to try to just copy the tape itself, which <laughs> I think people could do that, but... But um, they did some funny things, I think, with stereo or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, the Apple II was, was um, the beginning of a lot of the genres that we have today. And I hear you uh, caught Pac-Mania as well. Yeah, Pac-Man was, the, was probably the biggest game for me because that was also kind of like the Apple II with its graphics and sound and color. That's basically what Pac-Man was as well. Not just that, but the incredible game design that was different than everything that had come before. You know, you were destroying things all the time in every game, and usually it was an alien. And Pac-Man was these colorful characters, you know, and you were, like, running away from them and just eating dots. And that's, you know, that's that's pretty different because even, I think, the year before Pac-Man came out, there was a game called Head-On, which was eating dots. You're a car eating dots, but you would smash into other cars. So it was like this violent, still a violent car crash kind of game, but eating dots in a certain grid. Um, but not as interesting as Pac-Man. And with Pac-Man, there was all the kind of methods, and it was like the first one with actual levels, yeah, like different sections. Yep, it had different. Well, it, Pac-Man had the same um, the same map layout for every level. It just had the, um, the AI change after so many, you know, so many times. Yeah. You know, uh, the the AI would kind of switch because the characters were each character had a personality and so had a different algorithm for how it was going to move through the maze. Did you ever do any Pac-Man hacking or any stuff with that? No, but I, I uh, you know, Scott Miller and George Broussard wrote that, wrote their um, their book for the arcades and stuff. And I, uh, I just created my own patterns for the game. So I played Pac-Man so much that I could actually just go up to it and put the quarter in and just start talking to my friends. I don't even need to look at the screen for... For probably the first three levels, I could play the game without even looking at the screen and finish them. It's like reflex action, right? <laughs> I just patterned it, and then I just re- yeah, I put like hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of quarters into the machine, probably at least a thousand. So that that was the game that kind of inspired you to get into design and start experimenting. Yeah, that was because um, because it was so different. It really showed. Game design wasn't just what was happening in the '70s with 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 you know killing the aliens or shooting rocks or whatever it was, and it wasn't just space. You know, it was this abstract, strange thing that sounded really cool and fun and cute, and wasn't just for guys. You know, it was it just really showed game design is limitless. If yeah. you can go do a 180 from all the other games that were out there and do something this incredible. And basically, you know, there's a, a quarter shortage in the United States because of it. Yeah, you weren't uh, just shooting aliens, were you, on that one? It was a lot yeah. more <laughs> using your brain a lot more. And so you started designing and coding games. What was one of your first kind of programs? Um, well, my adventure games on the mainframe were my first ones on the Apple II. I think the first game that I wrote was, um, it was a Crazy Climber game. And Crazy Climber was one of my favorite arcade games. In fact, I think I was in a um, an, uh, in an arcade tournament in 1981, and Crazy Climber was one of the games we had to play. And I love that game. 
Uh, so I started to basically make it in low res 16 color on the Apple II, and I didn't go further than probably a couple days on it or something before I um, decided that I couldn't write it the way I was writing it because I didn't even know how to program that well. <laughs> it was really, really bad, but it was, you know. You're like, I want to do this, but. Yeah. I want to do it, but I don't know about variables. Like, that was. <laughs> not knowing about variables is pretty crippling. Um, w- what point did you decide you were going to make a career or have a go at becoming the games designer? Um, I think I just knew that the whole time because I dove into it and that's all I cared about doing. So when we got the computer at home in 1982, um, that was it. I was got the computer at home and that's what I had spent all my time on from when I got uh, home from school until I went to sleep every day and then weekends was holy crap, I can spend all day long on this thing. Um, I did that my whole, pretty much, you know, the whole time I was in school. So I made a ton of games, dozens and dozens of games. Yeah, I heard um, some of yours were on magazines as well. How Mm -hmm. did that happen? Uh, Just keep on making games. And at some point with uh, magazines, they had kind of a, they had a, a method to why a game would get published. And I, and I figured out what it was. It was, the fact that a game had to be fun, um, but it couldn't be a very long listing. They would list, they would print programs, they would print games that had basic and machine language or, or assembly language. And those tended to be shorter listings because basic does so much heavy lifting in print statements and in disk IO and that kind of stuff that it didn't take that many lines of basic to do a lot of that. And then you can focus on your core loop and graphic stuff in, in assembly. So I figured out, hey, if I did that, maybe it'd be short enough that they would print it. And that's exactly what happened. I had submitted, you know, um, probably 15 games before I finally, you know, and they all got rejected until until finally they accepted the one that I figured this this thing out. They accepted it, and I went, that's what I have to do. And then every game, yeah, every single game I made from that point on got accepted by the magazines because I figured out, oh, they just want me to do it a small thing, but basic in assembly, and, and people are learn. They, they like the readers to learn, so you have to put a lot of comments and stuff like that. And I've had people contact me who, who read my those listings and became programmers and learned 6502 assembly from those. Well, I was wondering what your parents thought at the time as well, because their son, you know, he'd be into computers and suddenly getting games on magazines and stuff. Yeah, well, they, um, I think... After they got me the computer, that was kind of it. Like they, they, they were too busy with their work and all that kind of stuff. So they, they never saw anything I made. They maybe recently saw Doom, but they have don't games aren't part of their world. Um, I mean, computer games aren't. They bowl all the time, and that's a game. <laughs> They've been doing that for their whole lives. But, but um, on computers, they really aren't big computer gamers, so they never. Uh, they don't have consoles. So, you know. so was it hard to kind of explain to them that you can actually make money? Out of I never did that. No, <laughs> no I just, just made games. I just did my own thing. Yeah, I just, uh, they didn't really know what was going on. They just were doing their own thing, and I just made games and sent them out, and that's what I kept on doing. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I was wondering how you started getting working with Origin Systems as well. Yeah, well, Origin was great because that was one of my favorite companies. I probably had three favorite companies back then. Um, Sirius Software in Origin and Sierra, you know, Broderbund probably in Sierra. I mean, those are like the biggest ones, but Broderbund had such a high quality, high quality level. Um, I'd say that 
Sierra was probably number four for me. And number one was Sirius, number two was Origin, um, and I loved the the Ultima games. So, and I'd finished one through five. You know, I'd finished every one of them. Um, so when I uh, went to Apple Fest 1987, I had decided that I had to get in the game industry. I could not wait any longer. It was just, like, ridiculous that I'd been programming for years in assembly language. I'd made so many games, and I wasn't I wasn't there. And it's like, well, it, I'm not going to get anywhere if I don't do something. Like, no one's coming over, over to me to say, hey, we just saw your stuff. You know, do you want a job? No one's going to do that. So you have to actually go do it yourself. So I went to this um, this Apple Fest, which was at the Moscone Center, which is where GDC happens every year. Uh, now it does. Back then it didn't exist. But um, when I went there, I went to the Uptime uh, booth, and that booth, was, everyone was playing my game that I had published on Uptime. So uh, everyone was, it was like a Qbert-style game. And the, the um, publisher, the guy who owned Uptime, offered me a job, which was in Rhode Island. So I'm like... Cool. There's a job. One job. I went over to the soft disk uh, booth, and they, you know, they found out that I had done uptime publishing. So they're like, "Hey, maybe you want to join us too." So I was like, "Possibly a number two job." And then I went over to Origins thing, which is completely different than those guys. Like yeah. these, these guys were amazing, and they had just gotten Ultima One rewritten in six five zero two assembly, so it wasn't a basic. And one of the computers was just showing that, and the other computers were showing Ultima 5, a demo of Ultima 5, because it was still in production. It was yeah. not going to be done for another seven months. Um, even though the poster said October 31st on it, it was like September at that time. <laughs> There's no way. Um, and I went up to the to the, to the computer that was running Ultima 1, I just threw the disc out of there and stuck in one of my discs and rebooted the computer. And the marketing woman comes over and is like, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, I want to show you something. And luckily I got into it quick enough before she came over that I could show her uh, this game that I'd written in double res, which was a tough thing to, to write back then. And she's like, whoa, did you write that? And I said, yeah, uh, I want to get a job at Origin. So she said, well, can I get your information? So I said, sure. And I said, can I get yours? <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I did that. So I got her info. And I basically called her as, mu- as much as I could, you know, once a week or whatever for the, next, um, for the next few weeks. And then she got me in touch with a guy there who was going to hire for a position, uh, for a porting position for the Commodore 64. So I got connected to him, didn't have to talk to her anymore, and then I just kept on talking, calling him, and he said, okay, I'm going to contact you as soon as this position's open. And then the position became open um, beginning of November of 1987, and uh, I had to do a phone interview with three programmers and I was basically up against four other Commodore 64 programmers in the United States for this job. And the people I was talking to were Apple II programmers and I'm an Apple II programmer. So it was it was pretty great. And they they decided to choose me over the other Commodore guys nice. <laughs> to come and do the real interview on site. So they flew me to New Hampshire from California and then, then I had to have an interview at a big huge conference table with nine programmers. And um, and it was great because at, you know at that point there was nothing that they could ask me that I didn't know. I knew every single thing there was to know about the computer. I'd been programming for ten years at that point, or um, well, eight years at that point. So it was an awesome interview. I totally blew through it. It was no problem. They hired me, and I moved out there in November and uh, of '87, and 
just started. I got a raise like three months later because I did some incredible stuff. And uh, did you do any work with Richard Garriott as well? No, Richard was in Austin, and I was in the. Um, I was with Robert Garriott, his brother, oh, right. who was running the San Francisco, uh, the New Hampshire office, which actually had everything else going on. So, Ultima Five was in Austin, and everything else. Okay. Everything else was in New Hampshire, and that means all the ports, all the other games, Ultima Five for the PC, like tons of stuff was going on. What was your uh, f- oh? What was your favorite time at Origin? Would you say? Uh, well, usually it was nighttime because <laughs> uh, nobody, you know, no one was there, and I could sit there and play music on the synthesizer, and I could just like look at the awesome, like you know, two stories worth of. Caverns of Callisto and Ultima maps and just like massive piles of cloth maps and trinkets and all the stuff that they put the boxes because they basically put all the boxes together there as well like that was their production facility oh, wow. uh, their QA their production assembly line out to the trucks and the bo- you know everything so I helped put boxes together and duplicating discs and shrink wrapping and QA like everything um, so it was really you know it was. It was just awesome. I loved it, and I was only there for you know maybe uh, eight months, something why, like that. Why did you end up leaving? I left because my my boss asked me if I would start a company with him. Wow. <laughs> okay, so, so yeah. that was that was pretty cool. I was I was you know I moved all the way across the, the U.S. to New Hampshire to go to this like dream job, and then uh, eight months later I quit to start a company with my with my boss who he quit as well so was that dream job soft disc no that was inside out okay. so i own the company so i i already had my own little startup from when i first got the apple II plus and by the time i got to origin i'd already published a ton of games through there at least 12 games by that time through that company and there's probably about five more a little bit after that um but then i started uh, inside out software which is the company where I did Might and Magic 2 port uh, from the Apple to the Commodore 64. And uh, my, my uh, co-founder, John Faschini, he did the PC version of it. So we were just sitting next to each other. I'm porting, porting it to the Commodore. He's porting it to the PC. And we're just burning through it. Um, and then I started porting uh, Tower Toppler from the Commodore to the Apple II. And so it was a, a reverse port. And that's when my contract got canceled. And then I basically quit that job and let him deal with the fallout. I mean, they went for another nine months after I took off, uh, but we already had a bunch of people there. And I, and I knew I need to get out of here into the industry, into to, to the PC and not stick around trying to keep on working on these Apple II and these 8-bit ports. I need to just get out of here. So I started another company with a friend of mine, Lane Roth, um, called Ideas from the Deep right after that. And we did um, probably about three or four games, and then we got we both went to Softdisk right after that. Okay. And uh, at what point did you meet John Carmack? That was um, about a year and three months after going to Softdisk. So I'd been making stuff um, pretty much every month since I got to Softdisk. And when I I basically told the president that I was going to go to LucasArts like I it was back, back then it was Lucasfilm so I just said I gotta make games you know I need to make games every day I can't do this utility stuff and catch up help these guys whatever I want to just make games all day long so I'm gonna go to Lucasfilm and he's like no 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 don't leave we'll start a game disc and you can just do games all day long so I said alright but I want 
uh, team. I want an artist and another programmer and someone to do management stuff because I don't want to deal, deal with any management. So he said, no problem, we'll do that. And so I started looking for programmers and the Apple II, I had, I, wor I made so many games back then that when I was working during the day on stuff, when I go home, I make more games. And I sell those games to soft disk on other disks, not the one I'm working on. So I made so much stuff that um, when I was looking for a programmer, this latest game that I'd made called Substalker was on a disk uh, with Tennis by John Carmack. Mm. And so I had seen Tennis uh, when they had published it. And uh, and I and I noticed that it was really really well well written because on an Apple II you can just see on the screen just yeah. by looking at it how good something is programmed and and I thought this guy's really really good so I asked if they would uh, call him in for an interview see if he'd be interested in working on PCs you know making PC games and they said nah he's he's not we tried to hire him twice already he's not going to do it and I said. If he's making games all day long, I think that he probably would, um, especially if he's doing it on PCs and, and it's new stuff to learn. He also, um, you guys did a, a Super Mario clone? Yeah, that was a, that was after he came. That, that was a lot yeah. later. No, it wasn't that much later. I mean, this so much stuff happened in the second half of 1990. Like, John got there, he wrote Catacombs on the Apple II while I was waiting to get the room that we could start the company, or start the, the, the Gamer's Edge department. As soon as we got that, we both go in the room, I write Dangerous Dave, he ports Catacomb to the PC from the Apple II one that he just finished, and he gave it to the Apple II department so they could publish it. And so we wrote that in one month, both those games in one month. And then right after that, we started working on the game disc, which was Slordax and um, and then Shadow Knights, like right after that. And and during those games is when we started basically id Software and made the whole Commander Keen trilogy, the first trilogy. And so all of those games, like, I don't know, two, three, four, five, six, seven games or whatever in six months. Um, yeah, we, <laughs> we, we coded uh, like insanity. Um and that's right after we we got it published with uh, Apogee. That's when we quit and started the company full time. I, I find it really interesting as well that you guys work with Apogee as well because later on you guys kind of became rivals with the uh, two different engines. And uh, how was it working with Scott Miller and stuff? It was really great working with Scott. You know, it was really easy. He's the one who contacted me. Um, he had been publishing stuff on Big Blue Disc, which was at Soft Disc. So he had been sending his submissions in and getting his games published. And, um, like, the Kingdom of Cross games, all those Cross games. And uh, and so he contacted me because he saw the games I was publishing on there. And he, wanted, he was setting up his shareware company. And he wanted to know if I would make some stuff like the stuff he saw but make it for him, for, for Apogee to publish, um, which would be a pretty quick thing if I just kind of did something different to my game and made new levels or whatever. So instead I just told him, I want to make all new stuff. I don't want to like port any of this old, you know, this old stuff. In fact, the stuff we're doing is really cool, and I sent him a, sent him a disc with... Um, I think it was Slordax or something, and and uh, and he's like, "Holy crap!" Because it used vertical panning, yeah. which no one had done yet, right? And so he was just super excited. And I said, "That's already old and crappy. You got to see the thing that we just did, which was this dangerous Dave and copyright infringement horizontal panning thing." And then he just went, 
like, oh my god, yeah, yeah. mind blown. I like I did. I was mind blown. And um, and then that's when he said, "You got to make a trilogy for me. Like it doesn't matter what it is." And and John Carmack came up with the idea. What about a kid who saves the universe? And Tom Hall's like, "I got the perfect idea." So he, Tom ran off and wrote down the Commander Keen paragraph and came back and read it to us. And we're like, "That's it. That's what we'll do." So we put it in a letter and sent it to you know sent was, to Scott. There was really a need at that time for um kind of platformer for the pc yeah there was well there were there were there were like captain comic was the platformer at the time back then and it was you know an ega game which was like vj really hadn't hit it yet you know still was like a year away from vj being more prominent some people were doing games in ega in high res 640 by 480 um, but really, 320 by 200 was the res that everybody was at, and, it, and EGA was the res that like most games were all done from 1987 on in EGA. So when we did um, Commander Keen, we did it in EGA. Uh, Command- Captain Comic by uh, Michael Danio, Danio, I think, um, was a huge game that everybody passed around, and it was a horizontal scrolling game, but it scrolled by chunks, you know, because yeah, it, it was using smooth. it wasn't smooth. It was using EGA latch mode to do it, but it was fast and it was fun, and he did a really great job on it. Um, I mean, someone soft disc played it every day, like he was addicted to it, and I thought it was a great game. I played a bunch of it. And um, what 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 did you think about Scott Miller's shareware model as well? That um... I we didn't know we did not know we he told us what shareware was and we're like you know how to do it we'll just make it and see what happens. Were you a bit doubtful? Um, I was doubtful about how much money he was making on his on games. I think he said something between fifteen and twenty thousand a month at that time. So I was like, "Wow, um, I don't know how you're doing that, but okay, <laughs> we'll do it and make it for you, and let's see what happens." So, um, going ahead to Wolfenstein, you went in the shareware model with that, and that was everything that we did with Apogee was shareware. Yeah. It was incredibly successful, that was, as well. Um, oh, massively. It destroyed Commander Keen's numbers immediately, yeah. yeah. And um, I'd also noticed that Ken Silverman was doing an engine, and you'd actually helped him later on on his build engine. No, we did not help. No? We did not help Ken. Um, we made the you know the Keen engine, and, and then Apogee... Uh, decided to build their own Keen engine with a guy named Gerald Lindsley. And uh, they had the source code for the Keen engine, so it was easier for them to get their game going, get their engine going. That's where Captain, uh, where Halloween Harry slash Alien Carnage came from and stuff like that. Or all those other games past Cosmo and and Biomenace. And um, anyway, the, uh, you know, Ken Silverman uh, is this kid that he found that, uh, you know, saw Wolfenstein and was like, Holy crap! You know, like I, mean, I want to make a three D, a three D engine, and I think his dad did all the math for him. His dad was a mathematician, so it was help, you know, very helpful. Um, and you know, we were making the Doom engine. Doom had already come out, you know, before long before that. Like we were the, always the first ones to come out with the new technology. So when um, Duke had come out, we were already shipped shipping quake like we were already okay. and we had taken forever to take to make the quake engine like a year and a half was a long time back then and that's how long it took to make the engine to make the game in the meantime everybody's kind of playing catch up with the build engine and they had made probably about four games using build at the beginning um they had runes which um i don't know if that one had shipped uh they had one 
Power uh, Ruins. Sorry, it was called Ruins. Power Slave, which got published, um, and Duke 3D and Blood. And so those were the four first build engine games. One of them didn't really come out, I don't think. But they were really great. You know, Duke was unbelievable. Such a fun game. Wolfenstein 3D. Kind of what really inspired you to do the 3D? Uh, so we'd played around with 3D for basically 1991, three different times. So in January of 1991, John Carmack wrote this cool spinning cube demo in January while we were making uh, the first idea of Quake, the, the um, fight for justice was what we were calling it. And so he played around with 3D then and kept on thinking about it for several months after that while we were making Dangerous Dave in the Haunted Mansion and and I think Rescue Rover. And then um, and then he's, then he basically said, I want to make a 3D game. I want to try and do it. You know, I think I can do it using this raster, uh, or this recasting technique. So that's when we started working on Hover Tank 1. And it took all the way to the end. Like the two months was packed full of insane programming to try and get that game done. He was, this is the only game he was ever worried that he wouldn't get out on time. And um, anyway, he did get it done, and that was the very first. You know, had some fisheye issues, but it, like it worked, and it was and it was solid fill polygon walls and everything. And then thinking more about it, and thinking about the con the the um, the phone call I'd had with um, Paul Nierath, you know, like a year in 1990, I had a call with Paul Nierath, and he was telling me about texture mapping, and I told John about that, and so he thought about how he could do that. A year later is when we finally make Catacomb 3D, and that's the first texture mapping, really uh, more modern texture mapping. Uh, in November 1991 is when we shipped that game, which is still you know like a half a year before uh, Ultima Underworld came out. Their VGA texture mapping, EGA texture mapping is much harder to do. Um, but we did right after we did the Catacombs, we wanted to make another game. We almost made another series of Commander Keens because we just shipped another trilogy of Keens, and we were starting on the next trilogy, number seven. And finally, we just went. You know what? No. We don't want to work on Keen again. You know, I think we should do a really violent 3D, you know, game that go go beyond uh, Catacomb. So it just immediately came to me. Tom Hall had an idea for something, and I immediately just said, why don't we just remake Wolfenstein, like Castle Wolfenstein? And everyone went, holy crap, that's it. You know, <laughs> like we obviously knew that was such a great idea. Nobody, I mean, no one had made another Wolfenstein pass beyond back in 1984. So uh, that was immediately the great idea, and it was like no other games around. Like, what other games are you blowing away Nazis? Like, no. no and it, it was great also having the enemy as Nazis because in people's heads it was past the it war, a, yeah. and that was everybody's enemy. And they were bad, yeah, bad dudes. This is before the rise of terrorism. So you know, it was like that was it. And um, we even talked about that. We even men- mentioned, like, what about a game about terrorists and stuff? And I was like, well, that's a little too close to home, probably. Like, yeah, this is yeah. this is many decades in the past. It, it wouldn't is... have that fun kind of element. Yeah, right? exactly. This is a safe enemy, you know. Um, so, so anyway, we did that, and it took four months, you know, to make the game and put out the shareware version of it. And then two more months to finish all the other five episodes and the hint book and everything. And, uh, and then we worked on Spirit Destiny for two months and got that done. 
And uh, continuing on the kind of violence theme, you decided to go to hell for the next yeah doom <laughs> next was game. yeah with doom that was inspired by our D D sessions like we'd been playing D D for years in john carmack's world and the end of his world came about by uh, basically a flood of demons to the material plane destroyed everything because it's basically an infinite number of demons coming from from hell so they all flooded and just it was months worth of fighting but finally the planet was dead and that was the end of the whole campaign like we were done playing the game because demons killed it and so that was kind of an inspiration like what if that actually happened you know on a moon somewhere instead of aliens coming through a gate why not hell i i find it amazing how much D's influenced gaming oh yeah there's a there's a empire of imagination is a new book which is finally about gary gygax it's a biography of gary gygax and it's about you know just the beginning of it but D's influenced everything Every single game that anybody plays is D and D influenced. Totally. Yeah. So, were you into kind of gothic stuff at the time as well, and uh, that kind of? No, no, not really. No, because um, it fitted really well into that nineties kind of. Era. Yeah, that was yeah. you know that was um, really the look was Adrian um, and, and Kevin. You know, those were only uh, two artists, and Adrian did a ton of that. And it was um, just hey hellish stuff and uh, tech tech base was what we called it the um, the the used Star Wars future right like let's do a used future kind of looking tech you know textures and so that's what we made for Doom it wasn't going to be clean shiny stuff you know like older sci-fi stuff we wanted it to be more alien and, and uh, Star Wars so we did that and then hell was just like cool hell type textures you know um green you know green bricks and blood walls and you know faces stretched on the walls and skulls and stuff and uh when was the decision made to go multiplayer as well because that totally changed everything that was before we started working on the game so unbelievably before we made before we actually started on the game you know we were documenting the ideas in the doom bible and stuff that we were putting together which is kind of funny. We call it Doom Bible, um, but the uh, we knew what the game was going to be in January of 1993, and that's when we started working on the game. And we put out a press release when we started working on the game, saying it's going to be the best game in the world, <laughs> yeah. and it's going to have multiplayer. And that was in the press release. And it had to. Live and we had to do it. <laughs> we had to do it. So we spent that whole year um, trying to fill in all, you know, basically do all the bolt, bolt points uh, on that list. So stuff for your life must have kind of gone insane then, uh, when the game was just globally probably the biggest game in history, one of them. Yeah, it was huge. I mean, and the thing is with Doom, it was interesting. When we were making it, um, it was the only game that we ever made where before we started working on it, we said this needs to be the greatest thing that we can ever imagine playing. Like, if there's anything better that we could put in this game that comes into our heads, we need to put it in. Like, there can't be anything better. Single-handedly, uh, as an as an Amiga user, I would kind of sit there and just be like, right, I give up. When Doom came, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure so many systems... Goodbye, Amiga. Just, yeah. I, I can just imagine the user meeting. <laughs> the yeah, Amiga, Amiga user. I'm going to the guy who killed your platform. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're all like, why did it not come out on the Amiga? And, yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, I just the impact of it it must have been insane yeah it was um 
it was really huge, but we, you know, we worked all the time. Like we were, we were really working. And when the game came out, there was more work to do because there were so many hint books and books that people are writing about it and all the modding exploded. So there's modding books. Yeah. That was like one of the first games that you could do massive yeah. mods on and, and then crazy. <laughs> and then there's people selling levels and like, is that going to be okay? And, and then we're, we decided that we're going to sell levels and make some newer ones. And it was just massive. And at the same time, we're making doom two. And then we start making the ultimate doom, which is a fourth episode. And then final doom. I mean, we're just like, and heretic and Hexen are happening all at the same time. <laughs> So it was insanely busy. We couldn't just we couldn't really pay attention to what was happening outside the company. We had incoming stuff all the time, and we only allow certain people in to do interviews or whatever. But like there was too much happening. Um, we we're completely busy all the time. So, so after the kind of doom period, did you step out of the company for a while and just go, "Oh wow, <laughs> it's a really big game," or not see? No, it didn't stop. It yeah, did it just stop. It going. just went on to quake. Quake, quake, yeah. quake went on. And then Ion Storm, where I'm hiring people that were influenced by those games, and they learned how to become level designers and everything because of those games. And so I started hiring those people. So um, it was just like no stopping. It was just a train. And and now it's led to this. You've got your own studio set up, and uh, this is my ninth studio. Your yeah. ninth studio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is is this the main one? It's Romero Games. Yeah, so. this is the main one. We decided to do that and you know this won't be a, a, a studio for sale because it's got our name on it so yeah. <laughs> so we'll keep it in um and make games here and and uh that's what we're doing it's super fun i mean we'll just keep and on are you are uh, currently developing some titles as well well we're about to release gunman taco truck which you can see right there uh this, <laughs> this game that our son came up with a really great game design and we spent you know a couple of years last couple of years basically making it having him design it and then we made it filled in all the gaps and stuff um but it's a really fun idea and it takes three uh pretty cool indie games and kind of puts them all in one game in different ways so the the united states part is like ftl and it's random every time you start it you don't know what your path across the u.s could be there's multiple paths it's different every time and um and uh and the and the the agonizing strategic choices you have to make on that map are crazy. And then there's the, you know, going down the highway, insane shooting, and it's very much ridiculous fishing. So you blow away these monsters, but their stuff is floating in the air, and you have to pick it up manually yourself to to get it. And then then, then there's uh, Papers, Please, which is the taco creation part, where you're having to study... Uh, the orders, pulling up recipe books to see what the what the what the ingredients are for the for the the you know how to make those tacos, and then the swiping of everything in there and dumping stuff out and all this very papers please, nice. but on a timer and, and it's in this retro sixteen bit yeah, kind of style as yep, well. Yeah, and it's an old you know retro. Excellent. Art. And are you uh, still playing the new Doom as well? I actually haven't played it yet. You I have I have it. Game. I just haven't played the I'm just not a console player. Yeah. Um but we just recently got um got uh Windows computers just to play games on cuz uh-huh. we're Mac people. Yeah. So we just got these Windows computers um so I need to I need to just put it on there and have it. Yeah. I bought the whole thing. I just haven't played it yet. It's, so yeah, it's quite good, oh, but know, we'll have to see really what good. you say. <laughs> no, I know it's I know it's really good. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, John. This has been a great interview. Cool. Thanks a lot. 
Hello, so I'm at Amiga Island at the moment. Um, there's some really interesting folks here, so I hope you uh, mingle a bit and find out who they are. Uh, like Paul Kitching here has done some amazing 3D graphics for the Retro Hour podcast and the Viva Amiga movie. And Darren Glenn over here, uh, among, among other things, uh, he's running a web server on an Amiga 1200. I actually have a web page, uh, a website I'm working on running off an, an Amiga. Uh, my wife has just told me that she's found Trevor Dickinson in Dublin Airport. <laughs> yeah, and they're just waiting on David Pleasance now, whose flight's a little delayed, but shouldn't be too much longer. So at the moment, I'm standing next to Kenny, who is doing the Sensible Soccer Tournament. How's it going? Very good. We've had, uh, we've had two games gone so far. A 3-1 win for Holland against Brazil, and 3-0 win for England versus Portugal. And so, yeah, it's cool. It's yeah, why did I choose America? I, I don't know. I think it's is it the, the Trump effect. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's going really well, and I'm kind of glad that you've chose this classic game that everybody knows. I, I think, like, this is my favourite game of all time, and there's just everything about it. I wouldn't change one thing about it. Everything is just perfect. And so, have, you, have you got the skills on this? I, I am good, but I have played online as well, and I got my ass handed to me a few times in a row, so I realised I'm not as good as I thought I was, you know. But. So I'm with Mike Batalana from Amiga Forever and Calanto. How are you? Thank you so much for being here. Thanks to here and uh, thank you for the emulator as well. What we tried to do, also being former Commodore Amiga developer since the 80s, was to first make it accepted and legal and then to keep investing into this also to preserve the culture because uh, we have a powerful authoring environment that goes beyond emulation like, and this you can then easier play in the future very soon on mobile for example where the user interface is much simpler. Yeah, and that kind of complete package as well, because you have stuff like um, Amiga Kit on there and Amiga Sys, which are yeah. kind of full emulated environments. But you also you have videos of uh, you know the history of Amiga and stuff. It's really interesting to have that look back and. Yeah. Well, you you are the new generation of video now, right? Yeah. Uh, we started the Amiga Forever Video Edition. Probably in the year that where YouTube started, yeah, no? so things evolved, and we probably have to adapt ourselves with new formats. And uh, just when you see something that looks old, even on our site, on our content, it's because resources are limited in this niche. However, we try to polish that up. And you also have the uh, C64, yeah, uh, forever Which as well. Probably it should be called CBM forever because we are trying to preserve the entire legacy of the 8-bit Commodore generations, yeah. multiple systems. And ideally, I'd like to see that also flow into something for the educational uh, front, you know, where you can learn programming and, and learn about the past to get a vision about the future, you know. I'm at an Amiga event and you are Tam. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Yeah, have you come far? Yeah, I've came from Limerick today. Oh, okay. And uh, have you used Amiga much in the past? Yeah, I had one when I was a kid. I had an Amiga 500 Plus when I was a kid, and uh, I had Commodore 64s and stuff as well. Oh, nice. And, uh, so, so lots I, of copied games. As yeah, well. oh, God, yeah. yeah. Every single game I owned was copied. I don't think we even had an official game in my house. David Pleasance is about to talk, the former MD of Commodore UK. The truth of the matter is that over the last um, 18 months, I've been inundated with requests to do a certain thing and I decided very recently, literally in the last few days, I am going to publish a book and the book is going to be about Commodore and Amiga from the inside. 
Remember, I had 12 years with Commodore. I'm, I know I'm one of the longest serving employees. And I've got so many stories that I can tell you, true stories that you will not believe. So I'd like to leave a legacy behind, which um, you know will tell people the whole story. I mean, somebody mentioned about Irving Gill, for example, um, and, and he uh, invested in Commodore. Well, I know, and I'm probably one of the few people, I know how he made his money in order to be able to invest in Commodore. And I know that because Irving Gould himself told me. And I'm gonna put that in the book because it's a bloody lovely story, right? And there are things like this that have happened all the time, things that nobody has ever got to know. The business plan that Colin Proudfoot and I put together was sensational. And, and we will give you an indication of that in the book. But anyway, thank you so much for your show of hands. I really appreciate that. So I'm with the organiser, Jarliff. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm great, Ravi. Good yeah. to see you. Are you enjoying this event? Yeah, I'm having a great time. Yeah. Yeah. So previously you set one up last year, right? Yeah, we had one here about six months ago. It was last summer and we had about 20 people at it uh, in a small room and we had a really good time. And we used the footage to promote the event a bit more and try and expand it, which is why we've got, you know, some of the, you know, we've got doubled our numbers, I think, this time. Yeah, um, excellent. Yeah, and of course, people like yourself come and have really been the icing on the cake. You've got some great stuff going. Are you going to continue? Absolutely. Every year, it'll be every January in Ireland at the, en at the end of the month, probably the second last weekend. Um, so, yeah, if you're listening and you're up for us, definitely keep your diary open. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. 